grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look way down the river, and what do you think I see? I see a band of angels, and they're coming after me. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look down yonder, Gabriel. Put your feet on the land and see. But Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet till you hear from me. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. That song has uh, been sung many years for many decades by many different singers, including Johnny Cash. Um, but you may not know the story behind that song. That song was written by a 12-year-old boy in the 1930s. And his name was Claude. And Claude was deathly sick with tuberculosis. And... He was confined to his bed in his bedroom with his house, and his parents, of course, were afraid of him dying, and uh, Claude was a believer. His parents were Christians, too, and one day after they had spent time in his room just laying next to him and praying, he just burst out spontaneously, ain't no grave gonna keep my body down, just said that, and that's how the song started, just like that, and it's amazing that this, you know, you think about a, a sick 12-year-old boy on his deathbed. He had such faith in Jesus that he knew that even if he died from this sickness, that Jesus would resurrect his body one day when Jesus returns. And the belief in bodily resurrection from the dead has always been a controversial idea. It's controversial right now. 
It was controversial in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, and it was controversial for centuries before that. But for Bible-believing Christians, the teaching of the resurrection of the dead is not up for debate. Christians believe that not only was Jesus resurrected from the dead, but also we believe what Scripture says and what Jesus said, that Jesus will return to earth one day in the future to physically resurrect every person who has ever lived. And then we will all see Jesus face to face in his flesh, and he will pronounce everlasting blessing upon every person who has trusted in him to rescue them from sin, and he will pronounce everlasting condemnation upon every person who has rejected him and his offer of salvation. When Paul was put on trial in the first century by the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, he was, he was tried for his unwavering belief in the resurrected Lord Jesus. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, we're going to continue today in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 22. And we're going to see here in this passage that uh, not only was Paul on trial for believing that Jesus uh, was back from the dead, but we're also going to see how the resurrected Jesus back from the dead actually comforts Paul in the middle of his trials here. Uh, so before we read this, let's ask the Lord to help us with his word. Lord Jesus, we believe that uh, you are alive and that you are reigning in heaven right now just like you say you are. You told us that uh, wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you are there among them. So we thank you, Lord, for being here with us right now. Thank you for this scripture you've appointed for us today. Please use it, God, to glorify your name. Please use it to help us love you and to love others according to the way you tell us to in your word. Please guard us from evil now. Please help us to focus on you. Teach us, Holy Spirit. We thank you for your grace, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So remember that Paul had just spoken to this angry crowd of Jewish people who, who want him dead. They want, to, they want to kill him. And Paul told them about how he had hated Christians before he encountered the, the resurrected Jesus. And then he told them about how that happened, how he met Jesus who was back from the dead. And Jesus told Paul to go preach the message of Jesus, the good news, the resurrection of Jesus to all the world, to both Jews and Gentiles. So let's look here first at uh, Acts 22, verses 22 to 29. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. When they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this, is, this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this, citizen, this citizenship for a large sum. 
Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So just like at Jesus' trial, this crowd here of Jews was pleading with the Roman leaders to put Paul to death. And remember that the speech that Paul gave to this crowd, he gave it in the Jews' native language of Hebrew or Aramaic was the, the spoken version. And so as Paul spoke to the crowd, the Roman guards who were looking on, including this tribune, likely had no idea what he'd been saying. And that's why the Tribune still can't figure out why everybody's mad at him. And so he says, um, let's interrogate this guy. Let's flog him and figure out why the crowd's so mad at him. And flogging was a horrific type of torture that the Romans used. Criminals were stretched out by their limbs. They were tied down to posts and beaten with leather whips that were wrapped with sharp pieces of metal and bone. And after being flogged by Roman soldiers, uh, criminals would either be crippled for life or many would not survive from their injuries. You'll remember uh, Jesus was flogged once, maybe twice, uh, before he went to the cross to die. Well, it says that as they were stretching out Paul's body to be flogged, Paul spoke to the Roman centurion and he told him he was a Roman citizen. And Paul said not only was he a Roman citizen, but that he was a Roman citizen by birth, which meant that Paul's father had been a Roman citizen too. So Paul had roots in the Roman Empire, and citizenship by birth was much more prestigious than buying citizenship from the empire, which this man uh, says was, was very expensive. And so as, as soon as the centurion and the tribune and the Roman soldiers heard that Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, they backed away from him, and it says they were filled with fear because they realized how much trouble they were in. They, they realized what they'd done. They had mistreated, and they'd almost flogged a man who was much higher on the social ladder than they were. Now, one of the character traits of Paul that shines through in this passage is his shrewdness. Shrewdness. To be shrewd is to have sharp powers of judgment, to be astute. And in these verses, Paul displays his shrewdness by leveraging his Roman citizenship to his advantage. And by doing this, he not only saves himself from from being flogged, but also he creates another opportunity to extend his trial and to testify further about Jesus. Godly shrewdness is a virtuous quality to have. You might remember that Jesus told a parable once in which even a dishonest manager was esteemed because of his shrewdness. So today, I would ask you, have you ever considered how you can be shrewd for the glory of God? How how can you shrewdly use everything God has made you a steward of to advance the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God? Specifically, as it pertains to this context, what position do you have? What relationships do you have? What influence do you have? What rights do you have that God has given you that you can leverage in an honest way for the glory of God's name? Let me give you a couple examples of of what this could look like. Uh, If you are a teacher in the public schools, 
How can you use your position in a shrewd and honest way to point the students in your care to Jesus? I spoke with a teacher this week uh, who was reading with her class about how our universe came into existence. They were just reading aloud from the textbook. And the textbook said that the majority of scientists believe that random particles of dust and energy spontaneously assembled and erupted to catalyze the beginning of our universe. And the teacher, who's a Christian, shrewdly asked her class, now class, is this the only theory about how the universe came into existence? And one student spoke up and said he believed that God created the universe. And another student said, yeah, that's what I believe too. And before you knew it, the students in the class were talking to each other about the idea of an intelligent designer who brought order out of the chaos and who designed the universe. And that discussion happened in a public school because the teacher, who didn't even have to say what she believed, shrewdly asked the right question to get the class to consider all scientific theories. Another way we can truly leverage our position for the glory of God is by making the most of our United States citizenship. We live in a country where we get to vote for our leaders and we get to vote for policies and laws, so we should vote. And we should vote in a way that promotes biblical values. And also, as Christian Americans, we must shrewdly consider how to use the great power and wealth and influence we have that so many people around the world do not have. You ever think about this? It, it, it was not an accident that you were born an American, if you were born an American. It's not an accident that uh, you were put here. The question is, will you use your freedoms and your rights and your wealth mainly to serve yourself and to get yourself ahead? Or will you use and, and shrewdly consider how you can use your position, your citizenship, your rights to help others in this country and around the world? How can we as the American church use our time and energy and resources to declare the gospel globally but also, how can we as the American church use our position and resources to be a voice for those who have no voice? And to, which if you read the Old Testament, that God commands that over and over and over again of his people. How can we be a voice for those in our society who have a, no voice and no influence? How can we shrewdly as Christians use our money to care for the poor and to care for people in distress over and above what the government does. Just like Paul shrewdly leveraged his Roman citizenship for the sake of the gospel, how can you leverage your unique positions of influence and freedoms to love God and to love others with gospel words and with gospel deeds? It's an important question to ask from today's passage. So far, Paul's trial here before the Jews has been an unofficial trial, okay? 
Um, this was a mob of ordinary Jewish cis, uh, citizens for the most part. But, but the knowledge now of Paul's Roman citizenship has increased the seriousness of this situation. And so now he'll be tried by the same Jewish council that condemned his master, Jesus, to death, which this council is called the Sanhedrin. So uh, let's pick up at Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, talking about the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So for whatever reason, Paul did not realize it was the Jewish high priest he had just yelled at. There's a lot of different theories on why that was. But what we do know is that Paul quickly apologized for speaking to the high priest disrespectfully. That being said, Paul was right in what he said. It was unlawful for the high priest to command a guard to punch Paul or slap him in the mouth like that. You can imagine in our court system if that happened, if a judge tells the bailiff to punch the defendant in the face because he doesn't like something he said, I wouldn't be okay. And it was against the Jewish law also. And so Paul's point here is that the high priest Ananias was acting hypocritically since Ananias himself had just broken the law that he was supposed to enforce honorably. And so Paul makes this verbal jab at him. And <clears throat> this jab reminds us, helpfully, that Paul was, man, he was just a human like everybody else. He, it, it's tempting at times to idolize Paul and other men and women that we read about in Scripture. But at the end of the day, they were just people like you and me. Paul was acting here how he had instructed Christians not to act. And we can learn, that's my interpretation of what's going on. Other commentators would disagree. But that's what I see. But what we can do is we can learn two important lessons here. First is this. This is very important. That God's word, scripture, is without error. But Paul was not without errors. See that? Scripture is without error, but Paul was not without errors. So the, the, the man Paul did not perfectly fulfill the very law of Christ that the Spirit of Christ led him to write down as Scripture. Paul did not look in faith to himself as the fulfiller of God's law. Paul looked in faith to Jesus as the fulfiller of God's law. And so Paul was merely a human, but Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus filled Paul and other imperfect men with his Holy Spirit to mysteriously write down the perfect word of God, which we call Scripture or the Bible. That does not mean, or we should ever um, 
turn Paul or Peter or any of these religious leaders into something more than they are and to say that everything they do and say is infallible. What God did using these people to write down scripture is infallible and inerrant, but it doesn't mean these people were perfect. Okay? That's an important thing to recognize. Now, second, we're reminded by this court scene that uh, you know, we can sabotage the truth that we speak by the way that we speak it. You might be right about something. You might be saying something really important, but if you do not speak to others in a respectful way, then you are hindering yourself from being heard. Right? You're hindering the message that you want to communicate. In Ephesians 4, Paul wrote about the importance of speaking the truth in love. So when we talk to others, whether we're talking to Christians or non-Christians or whoever, we should consider the golden rule. How would I like to be spoken to? How would, uh, what, what tone of voice would I consider to be respectful? What, uh, what body language would I consider to be respectful? Listen closely here. It is amazing how the supernatural power of Christ's love can change the tone of a conversation when at least one of the people speaking is determined to love the other person. It can change the whole tone of a conversation. Whether we're talking to family members or neighbors or other believers or non-believers, let's shrewdly consider ahead of time the best way that we would like to share the truth in love, even if we're not loved back by them, and hopefully, as God sanctifies us more and more, in the heat of the moment, our anger wouldn't boil over and get the best of us like it got the best of Paul here. Hopefully, if, if we're praying about that and working on that and asking God to work his spirit's power and fruit through us, that will become less and less a pattern in our lives. But we should follow Paul's example here when we do mess up. I mean, what he does is right. He's, Paul's example is to quickly apologize for your behavior when you mess up, to repent, which means to go to the other direction, to not follow that path, but to go the other direction, to go in a different route, and to look to Jesus as your forgiver and as your grace giver. That's the pattern of, uh, that we follow of, of confession and and repentance in the Christian life. Um, Paul's conversation here continues. Let's pick up in verse 6. <clears throat> now, when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with, with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force 
and bring him into the barracks. So again, Paul does something very shrewd here. He, he focuses everyone's attention on one of the main reasons he's on trial, his hope in the resurrection of the dead, and specifically the resurrection of Jesus. And by pointing to the resurrection, Paul reveals this deep pre-existing rift within the Jewish council. The Pharisees on the council were the more theologically conservative of the bunch. They believed in a future resurrection. They believed in angels and spirits. Uh, the Sanhedrins on the council were more theologically liberal. They did not believe in a future resurrec resurrection or in angels or in spirits. And so Paul says, hey, Pharisees, I'm one of you. Remember? 20 years, so 20 years had, had passed now since he was one of them. He says, I was living among you guys. You and I believe the same thing about the resurrection. And Paul's here, words here are so persuasive with the Pharisees that uh, one of their scribes stood up and he said, hey, we can't find anything wrong with this guy. What if, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, with the, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, right? So that ticks the Sadducees off. The whole council erupts in shouting and violence. And the Roman tribune, again, who's watching all this happen, uh, he sees that Paul's life is in danger. And so he commands the soldiers, you guys got to get Paul out of there. And they take him out of there and they take him into the barracks. So we see here how controversial the doctrine of resurrection was among the Jews. And think about this. They had not even talked about Jesus' resurrection yet here. Jesus' resurrection, which foreshadowed the resurrection of all humanity to come. And so these verses remind us then how significantly the concept of resurrection ought to shape the way that we Christians view the world. And our belief in resurrection, it also shapes everything that we believe about Jesus, about his teachings, about his ability to rescue us from sin and from hell, about the, the hope that we have in the future. <clears throat> you see, it's not difficult for a non-Christian to affirm that, uh, or non-Christian or even a non-theist, an atheist, to, to affirm that Jesus was a very moral man who lived an exemplary life. It's not difficult for a non-Christian to affirm that, that Jesus was arrested, tried and flogged and crucified on a cross and buried. What is difficult for the non-Christian to affirm is that Jesus rose physically from the dead three days later in full health and glory. And that by doing so, Jesus displayed that he is God, that he does have power over all life and death, that all the words he spoke are true, that he was totally vindicated, and that he must be obeyed and worshiped as Lord of heaven and of earth, by all creation, everyone in this room and outside of this room. You see, get rid of the resurrection of Jesus and you have a Jesus that the world can tolerate much more. And some self-proclaimed Christians have been terribly misled and have aligned themselves with the Sanhedrins and even with non-Christians. Many self-proclaimed theologically liberal or progressive Christians argue that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a symbolic resurrection, not a physical resurrection. It's about the power of love conquering all things. And Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's about the transcendent power of love. 
They, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and so they want to cater the gospel message to a world that also doesn't believe that he rose from the dead. And so they have attempted to, the, to the, the, the term is demythologize the Bible, to take the myths out of the Bible, demythologize the Bible. But a demythologized Bible is no Bible at all. A demythologized resurrection is no resurrection at all. Think about this. The entire reason Jesus rose physically from the dead was to prove that his divinity is not a myth. <laughs> That's the whole point of the resurrection. The physical resurrection of Jesus, which is directly connected to the future resurrection of his people and their future restoration and their future glorification, has been always central to the Christian faith and will be and must be until Jesus returns. And for us, <clears throat> I just want you to consider this. It's just kind of another application point. The, the doctrine of resurrection, not only Jesus' resurrection, but your resurrection in the future, it should profoundly shape the way that you view the past, that you view your present, and that you view the future. When you really believe in the resurrection, that you're going to be resurrected, it changes your values, and it changes a lot of things, which I'm not going to get into right now. But, but think about that, how how that changes um, the way that you look at God and the way that you look at your time on earth and the hope that you have for the future. Paul talks about this further in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. <clears throat> now, if Christ, he says, is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So the resurrection Christians, uh, Christians, the resurrection is central to the message of the gospel of Jesus and the hope that we have. And do not be ashamed of the resurrection of Jesus when you're talking to those who don't believe. Jesus wants to celebrate it because we've been united with him in it. This is, what, this is why we <clears throat> have baptism and and do baptism by immersion as a physical symbol of being united to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Celebrate everything that Jesus' resurrection from the dead accomplishes and, that, uh, and that, it, that it accomplished in the past and that it signifies. What does it signify? Christ's deity? Christ's truthfulness in all that he said and did? Christ's righteousness? His vindication? Christ's power? Christ's victory, Christ's forgiveness, Christ's redemption and restoration of his creation and of all people who trust in him. Wow. If you're reading this today and, or hearing this and have not thought deeply about your own resurrection or your own eternity, 
If you haven't trusted in the resurrected Lord Jesus, then today is the day to do that. Believe that you have done wrong. It shouldn't be, I mean, it can be kind of complicated, but for most people, it's not too complicated to get people to believe they've done things wrong in their life. Believe that you've sinned, though, in doing wrong. What, what, what David said in the Psalms is, I've sinned against you alone. And he wrote that after he'd had an affair with Bathsheba. He says, I've sinned against you alone. Not that he didn't get sin against Bathsheba and her husband, but that his ultimate sin was against God because he disobeyed God by doing that. And so it's very crucial for you to know that you've sinned against the holy God of the universe and that your sin has a consequence in eternity, that it's earned you God's wrath. And so you need to see your need for God's forgiveness and mercy. You're you're in a lot of trouble, a bad situation. But you also need to believe this, that God, who is full of mercy and compassion, sent his only son to come to earth to go to the cross in order to bear in himself, in his body, your sin so that he could put it to death so that you could be freed from God's wrath. And then believe that Jesus rose from the dead to declare him God and you forgiven and righteous in Jesus. So that you can know today that you have been united to Jesus and that you have been united to his resurrection through faith. Call on the name of Jesus today. Ask him to save you. Put all your trust in him and not in yourself or anything else. And Jesus says, be saved be baptized, and begin to follow me according to my word. That's what Jesus says. Many of you in here have already taken that step. Many of you have been born again, and I would just pray that God would would do that today and through those who hear this message by the power of his word. So here in this passage, Paul has again been rescued from the Jews. His immediate future is uncertain. This trip to Jerusalem had not gone how he wanted it to go. Uh, remember, he, why had he come? To bring an offering for poor people? To celebrate Pentecost? But so far, he's been lied about. He's been beaten physically, mocked, persecuted for his faith, on, on trial. And he's staying in the barracks, the Roman military barracks in Jerusalem, until the tribune decides what to do with him next. Now let's read this sweet verse here. Acts 23, 11, About how God comforted Paul during that time. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. You know, Paul must have often felt very low, especially when he was in jail, because this is the second time the Lord's appeared to him in jail to encourage him. Uh, earlier when Paul was in jail in Corinth, the Lord appeared to him. You remember Acts 18, 9 to 10, it says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, 
but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Now that appearance in Corinth was in a vision Paul had. But it hit me this week that here in the barracks, it says Jesus stood next to Paul physically in his resurrected body. And what does he tell Paul? What's the main imperative, the command he tells Paul? Take courage or be courageous or be confident in Christ. That's what he's saying, be confident in Christ. And I think God has brought many of you here today because he wants you to hear him tell you today, take courage. Be confident in me and in my words and in my salvation. From what Jesus says and does here in this verse, there are five good reasons Paul has to be courageous. And these five reasons apply to you, too, if you're trusting in Jesus and seeking to obey Jesus, seeking to follow him. First, be courageous because Jesus is alive and he has all power. So the very fact that Jesus shows up to Paul again proves again that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is still alive. Ironically, after they have this huge argument about the resurrection, Jesus just shows up in his resurrection body, right? And not only is Jesus alive, he has all power and all authority over everything. Anything he wants to happen, anything he wills to happen, will happen. Think about this. This is the other thing that hit me. This is the second time that Jesus has appeared to one or more people in his resurrected body inside of a locked building. How how does that happen? The first time was when he appeared to the disciples who had locked themselves in the upper room. And now Jesus appears to Paul in his cell inside these heavily guarded military barracks. How did he do that? He's God. He's alive. He has all power, and he can do anything he wants. That's great news for those of us who are on Team Jesus. Okay? Second, Be courageous because Jesus is with his people. One of the last things Jesus told his followers before he physically ascended into heaven was, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And now in one sense, God is with everybody everywhere because he's God. He's omnipresent. But in addition to his omnipresence, Jesus is with his redeemed people in a very special way. This, and this has helped me because I've thought a lot about this, but I think this is what it means. He's not merely with him, with his people, but he's for them. The presence of God isn't really that soothing if God's not for you. But he's saying, I'm with you, and I'm for you. And that's why Jesus physically, in his body, appears to Paul to remind Paul, Paul, I'm with you, even when you can't see me. I've got your back. I'm by your side. I'm here, Paul. 
And for Christians, the message is the same because the promise is the same. It pertains to the church. You're never alone, even when you feel very alone. Jesus is always with you. He has promised never to leave you or to forsake you, to turn his back on you. He's promised it. Praise God, right? (laughs) Praise God. Okay, third, be courageous because God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Jesus wants Paul to know that he still has plans for him on earth. Paul will still testify about Jesus in Rome, and the same is true for you and for me. God created you as an individual purposefully and with a plan for your life. He made you the way that you are purposefully, and he loves you. He made you different from other people because he wanted to make you, you. You are valuable. You are made in the image of God, and every person is. And you are created as the image bearer of God to reflect the image of God to the earth. So even when you're feeling very low, even when you are in terrible circumstances, you are not outside of God's purposes and plans. Even when you don't know if you're going to make it or how you're going to make it or if you are unsure if you want to make it, you can be courageous because the Lord is mysteriously at work in your life with purpose. Not one day of your life is an accident. Think about that. Psalm 139, 15 to 16 says this. My frame was not hidden from you, talking to the Lord. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, talking about the uterus. Your eyes saw my unformed unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Isn't that amazing? In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And when you're scared and when you're tired and weak and not sure why God is allowing hardship in your life, remember Romans 8, 26 to 28, which says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Fourth, take courage because Jesus will give you more grace and more help in the future. See, Jesus not only knows that Paul will testify in in human courts, he's also promised to help Paul do that. You'll remember in Jesus' public ministry, Luke 12, 11 to 12, says, and... Jesus said, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So if you plan to meet with somebody to, to tell them about Jesus, then take courage because Jesus will give you the words in that hour to say. And if, and if there is something else in the future that you are anticipating to be difficult, God wants you to know that he will help you in that very hour. There was a book that helped me with this by John Piper called Future Grace. It's not a small book. It's not an easy book. I think I probably made it two chapters in. But it was very revolutionary in the way that I thought about God's future grace that it hasn't been poured out yet on me and on us. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jesus will give you more grace and more help in the future. And fifth, take courage because Jesus is your justifier. Jesus is your justifier and your judge. I'll throw that in there. Paul had been mocked and condemned by so many people. He'd made many enemies. He, 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 he surely had made mistakes in ministry. And now he's sitting in a cell, and surely what does Satan want to do with Paul while he's sitting alone? He wants Paul, he wants to beat Paul over the head. He wants to uh, get Paul to doubt his purpose and his calling. He wants Paul to be afraid of those who are opposing him. But Jesus showed up in the resurrected body to remind Paul that he's with him and that he should take courage because Jesus is Paul's justifier. Jesus is the one who pronounces guilty and not guilty. And Paul had already been declared not guilty by God when he trusted in Jesus, just like those of you who have trusted in Jesus. Jesus wants us to remember that he is our justifier, that he is the one. See, he's the one who says whether you're eternally condemned or eternally blessed. Remember he said this in the Gospel of John? All authority, all judgment has been given to me. Jesus is the judge, and graciously Jesus is the justifier. He is the one who says to Christians, you've already crossed over from death to life. Jesus is the one who will have the final say about right and wrong. It will not be up to any human government court or the court of public opinion. Even though Paul was locked up in a, in a Roman military barrack preparing for a series of trials, even though it appeared to the world that he was guilty and condemned, Paul's hope was in a much higher court. So whether a human court finds you innocent or guilty is really pretty insignificant. That judgment is very temporary. Hopefully, justice will be done, obviously, on earth, but we must remember, judgment, earthly judgment, is temporary. What matters most, what matters for eternity, is that God declares you just for eternity. And that kind of declaration is something only God can declare, and it's something that only God can give. 
and he offers it to you, and he offers it to all peoples of the earth alive right now. Turn to Jesus, trust in him, be eternally, be made eternally just in God's eyes because he imputes to you the righteousness of God. He reckons or considers you to have the righteousness of Christ if you are united to Christ through faith. Wow. Jesus is your justifier. Wow. That's good news. So inside those military barracks in Jerusalem, you know, think about this. Jesus would have been no encouragement or hope to Paul had Jesus not been resurrected from the dead. Jesus would have been no encouragement to Paul had Jesus not been God. But Jesus is God. Jesus did rise from the dead. Jesus is alive. He is reigning over all things in heaven, and he is coming again. And so until we see him face to face, either when he takes us home or he comes here, one of the other is going to happen. Until that happens, let's do a few things. May we shrewdly leverage all that we are and all that we have on earth for the glory of our awesome justifier. And may we, may we continue to tell the world about Jesus and about his good news. And when we mess up, when we sin, when we confess our sins and repent, when we act in ways that dishonor God, and may we celebrate this, that the plan of the resurrected Lord Jesus is to redeem and to restore everybody who turns to him, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Please stand with me. Let me close our time in prayer. Thank you guys so much for being here. Love you guys. Love to talk to you after the service if you want to hang around for a little bit. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for today. Thank you for uh, this family here at Cedar Home. <clears throat> thank you for what you've done, Lord Jesus, to, to save us. And thank you just for this great news, God, that you, you are who you say you are. All your promises are true. You are back from the dead. And graciously, because of your compassion and mercy, we can be united to your resurrection power through faith in you so that we too will be raised in glory. Not because of us, but despite of us. But all because of you. Because of your glory, we, we get to be covered in that. And that is awesome news. Thank you for your love. Help us to treasure this and to share it and show us ways that we can share this great news around uh, with others. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you guys.